Hello, my friends. Today we're talking to Steven, the VP of Engineering at InnoData. And we discuss how InnoData enables data scientists to spend more time on data analysis rather than data extraction, avoiding bias and echo chambers in AI, and tips for meeting the needs of a diverse team as a manager. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Yeah, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? How'd you get into technology? So I have always been into computer-related things, uh, trying to learn how to program on my own as a, as a kid, um, pre-college. And in college, I went to, to University of Virginia and focused on systems and information engineering for undergrad and grad school, which is, it's, it's a combination of operations research and kind of management consulting and, and various other things. And I, I minored in computer science because I still wanted that kind of uh, really hands-on applic- application experience. And I went into a lot of government work with a company called MITRE, which is a which runs a number of federally funded research and development centers. It's a it's a really interesting company. If you ever uh, if you ever want to ch- check out MITRE, they do a lot of really fascinating work f- for the government, and they are a nonprofit entity. So they're they're, they're kind of this. This uh, strategic advisor implementation, um, all kinds of things for the government. So that was that was the springboard for learning a lot of things at, at the same time right out of school. Um, I worked for most of the the intel and defense agencies in the the DC area, and uh, got a lot of really interesting experience with data and with um, coming up with platforms and tools to help analysts um, to facilitate taking lots of disparate kinds of data and fusing it together to help answer questions. I became the the chief of technology for an Intel fusion cell and what's an Intel some, fusion cell? Uh, so so it's a place where you have lots of different kinds of analysts and lots of different kinds of data come together in one place to work together on, uh, on, on a specific kind of problem. So, so imagine um, expertise in uh, human intelligence, understanding um, uh, intelligence reports, working with somebody that is an expert in imagery analysis, and working with uh, experts in other domains in the intel and defense world, and even people like myself, technologists that kind of specialize in, in creating um, software um, and manipulating data and, and helping facilitate the kinds of analytic uh, products that they need to get out. So, so I would do things like th- this, this range of uh, if we see somebody click a button 30 times in, in one day, you know, that's something we need to fix. So we'll write a tool to help them. So they only click that button one time a day. So they don't have to focus on that button anymore. They can focus on the, on the hard work. <laughs> and uh, anything from as simple as that to, I know maybe 15 or so years ago, we were 
we were extracting all of the nouns and verbs from every piece of intelligence that we could get our hands on. And we were extracting billions of records um, and creating tools to help analysts search and query and identify, you know, those, the, those proverbial uh, needles in the haystack. Yeah. Um, so that, that was a, that was a lot of really interesting, varied experience. Um, and it took me to Afghanistan a number of times, um, building tools, um, out in Afghanistan and, and traveling around training, uh, analysts on how to use those tools and how to take advantage of it. Uh, I did the same thing in Iraq for, for a very short period of time. So that was, uh, that's kind of what set me off in the, uh, the technology direction. That's really interesting. A little while ago, we had on a company called IMO. Uh, we had their COO, Ivana, on. And they what they do is they take medical terminology and they have like these subject matter, matter experts, like medical doctors, just like pouring through textbooks and pulling out these terms. And they put the terminology into data sets and deploy that to hospitals so that their systems can understand the notes that the doctors take during their uh, like visits with patients and stuff. Um, and that helps with like creating automated billing processes and stuff. It's, but like, mm -hmm. it was really interesting to me learning that there's so much work that has to go into just deploying literal words to, yeah. for, for systems to understand the words. And you talking about having to pull all those nouns and verbs for um, the government work sounds like pretty similar. And it, it's crazy that I just feel like I went so long not hearing about that at all. And now here we are twice. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It really comes back down to that. And, and, uh, and probably the reason why people don't talk about it as much is because it, it has become kind of the status quo and people are focused on higher level activities like as a data scientist, how do I focus on building my neural network and using that to automatically extract data, which is, you know, the ultimate goal. But I think a lot of times people forget how important that data preparation stage is, which is, which is kind of the building blocks of all of the, the really fancy AI ML stuff that we do today whether it's it's building on top of that named entity recognition extracting those those nouns and verbs or you know people places things or or whatever you're interested in or or something more complex those are really all the the stakes in the ground and and um that's actually at, at InnoData, um the the company uh, I'm I'm a, a part of now um one of the the major platforms that we're building is a data for AI platform that focuses on how you get that training data. So the it, it kind of it kind of comes full circle to to helping the analysts, you know, 15 years ago who were spending 80% of their time manipulating data and 20% of their time doing the analysis. That that that's been kind of a common thread throughout my career. Um, whether it's helping analysts in the intel and defense world or helping uh, automotive companies identify uh, emerging issues uh, or, uh, and now at InnoData, uh, helping data scientists focus on training their models. So flipping that 80-20 so that they're not spending 80% of their time 
tagging and identifying individual words so they can train their model uh, in only 20% of their time refining things, but rather uh, really focus on expediting, facilitating that high quality training data so that you can spend more time on that, uh, that, that higher level AI ML that, that we hear about uh, so much more these days. That makes a lot of sense. So what are some major differences that you've encountered? It sounds like you've been trying to solve the same problem while ser- like serving the government sector and serving the commercial sector. What, are, what have been some major differences between the two? Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question because I don't know, there, there aren't significant differences from a technology perspective. There are obviously significant differences in, in the application and, and what you're using it for and, and maybe the types of information. Um, but when it comes down to it, the, the, the type of technology that you would use today to analyze um, an intelligence report is very similar, you know, under the hood to something that you would use to extract uh, relevant information from an insurance claim or uh, an earnings report. A lot of those technologies are uh, share share a lot a lot of things in common. Um, I think really when it comes down to it, the differences are really just about the data. So uh, the availability of the data, the quality of the data, the capacity to turn that into something that is useful for training a, a more uh, more sophisticated model, um, and and, and and to prepare it, so a lot most data is very uh, un, unclean and needs filtering. It's inconsistent, um, and so you need a lot of tools to help with that. So I think um, you know when I think about platforms, the uh, for data engineers like myself, I think one of the last things that we think of is uh, design and user experience, and so. I, I think that is something that is going to change, um, that is changing now. And I think we'll see a, a much larger focus on design and user experience around that, that data preparation stage, that data analytics stage, uh, really the whole data life cycle. I think we're going to see more focus on what it means to users because at the end of the day, you can... You can eventually use machine learning to to bootstrap and uh, and and self learn uh, essentially, but you still need humans to kick that off, and you need humans in the loop to manage data drift over time. Right. Um, so so yeah, I think the one of the the bigger differences, kind of going back to your question, is in the ways that you might interact with systems might be a little bit different. Um, between applications, you know, if that's government versus commercial. But really, I think that the biggest difference we're going to see in the next few years is is a focus on uh, what that means for end, end users. That makes sense, yeah. So before we get into all the nitty-gritty of cleaning data and mm. uh, training AI algorithms, let's take a step back, because a little while ago we had on your chief product and marketing officer, Raul. Yeah. But for those that didn't listen to that episode, can you give me like a brief overview of what InnoData does? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, InnoData is a really fascinating company. So uh, InnoData has been around for uh, about 30 years now, publicly traded on the NASDAQ. Um, 
uh, historically kind of rooted in uh, publishing, the publishing domain um, with things like eBooks. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, the company evolved by uh, taking a lot of that kind of data engineering experience and expanding into uh, scientific journals, uh, legal journals, medical journals, and over time built up this um, impressive team of subject matter experts. And today, um, InnoData has something uh, north of 3,500 subject matter experts on staff that are uh, including doctors and lawyers that help not just in that publishing space anymore, but also in, in all sorts of other industries and verticals to apply that subject matter expertise to, to data extraction, uh, data annotation, uh, and various kinds of processing. And in recent years, InnoData has taken significant uh, leaps forward in uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to augment and supplement um, the, the, the good work that those subject matter experts do. Um, so there's a, a number of products that InnoData offers in addition to the managed services for, for data, uh, for, uh, data processing, automated platforms for data extraction, extracting data points according to, to a set taxonomy, for example, in the, in the financial or the legal spaces. Um, and, and also, uh, the data annotation platform, um, which is one of the one of the key platforms that I, that I focus on in InnoData, um, which really takes which really takes into consideration all the lessons learned over the history of the company um, and the subject matter experts and how we build our own models, uh, leveraging all that experience and turning it into uh, a customer-facing SaaS self-service platform that helps facilitate that data from end to end. So uh, from, from the raw data to powering an actual machine learning model and, and applying that to a real problem. So what does it look like using the data annotation platform in practice? Like what's the input and what's the output? Yeah, it's a good question. So, so it's actually... Uh, a number of things, uh, depending on the use case. So the, the way I, I talk about the annotation platform is, is workbenches, workflows, and KPIs, uh, which kind of encompass the, the ecosystem of things that you need in a more end-to-end self-service platform where somebody even outside of InnoData can sign up and click and, and start their own process to facilitate getting, uh, getting to that final um, product and and so when you when you first fire up the platform uh, you'll configure a new project and you'll select a workbench that's based on a use case so if you think of workbenches as my collection of tools that I might use for a particular kind of problem if I'm if I'm categorizing credit card transactions then I need a workbench that shows me records and I need certain tools to help me get through a list of records, something that you might be familiar with seeing in a spreadsheet often, tools to help you get through labeling that in an efficient and high quality way. Uh, that might be one kind of workbench. Another kind of workbench might be more geared towards uh, annotating entities in line within a document. So 
any reference you see to to, to Steve or Adam uh, in a document you might want to highlight um, in relation to uh, an event and connect all of those things visually. So to, to dumb it down a little bit, um, you're talking about relating all the records in a spreadsheet to like a tool for helping you sort through those. That tool could be something like when you're working in a spreadsheet, you have like an autocomplete that can, you can like just drag the cell down and it'll fill in the next line of data based off of what you've been putting in for each record. Is that, is that a good yeah, no, analogy? That, that, that is spot on. So cool. Okay. It, it's kind of the, the hidden side of data science. It's, um, it's really preparing all of this data so that you have a set of clean labels that you have high confidence in so that when you go and train your model to automatically recognize the next credit card transaction and, and see that even though it's clearly a gas station, uh, to identify whether that's actually a gas purchase or if it's more of a convenience store, maybe, maybe the, the person bought a candy bar instead. So there's a lot of factors that you might take into account. You can only take those into account if you've had a human take a look at that first and make a decision on, on how to treat those types of things. That makes sense, yeah. Cool, so what are, what are some of the more interesting use cases you've seen for the platform, just like stuff that's kind of out there? Yeah, so, uh, so we, we do a lot of text-based annotation. There's a lot of expertise in the company around um, the legal, the healthcare domains, the financial services domains. Uh, we've also done a lot of work in image and video annotation, which I think is is fascinating. Um, I I have um, I've built a lot of geospatial analytic platforms in the past. So assigning latitude longitude coordinates to 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 points on a map, but image annotation is a little bit different from that. And I think uh, image annotation is a is a fascinating world where. It ranges anywhere from looking at a shopping cart where you might have occluded items. So you might have a box of cereal, but sitting on top of it is a jar of peanut butter, and you need to be able to account for that in your in an image recognition model. So those are really interesting use cases, and, and whether the annotator is tasked to outline the full occluded, you know, hidden box of cereal or just the visible portion. Those are all kinds of things that um, that have different implications for for what you're trying to do, and and you can, as you can imagine, uh, those get those kinds of decisions are much more critical when you start thinking about autonomous vehicles and recognizing things on the road reliably. Yeah, that makes sense. That's life or death. Like, <laughs> but um, that actually makes me think of like in a, a really specific use case of AI that I was listening to this other podcast called HPE Tech Talk. And they, it's a tech podcast put out by Hewlett Packard. Um, and they were interviewing someone from the Walt Disney Studio Lab um, about how they're applying AI in the filmmaking process. Because at the end of creating a movie, they have these quality control experts that go through and check out the entire film frame by frame and look for pixel level anomalies on each individual frame. Like that's the level of detail they get into on this quality control. And they used to have people go, like that were responsible for finding 
a single miscolored pixel on a single frame of a movie. But now they're able to train their AI, presumably with some really high quality image recognition um, that's able to find these anomalies. And just like you were talking about flipping the 80-20 ratio there, now the quality control experts are able to spend a lot more of their time focusing on what to do about the anomalies. Is it worth fixing? And if it is worth fixing, how do you fix it? Because the movie's done. Right. It's, uh, yeah. That, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I wonder if that can help um, resolve the, the, the coffee cup in the, the Game of Thrones uh, issue. I don't know if I'm not familiar. Can you fill yeah, me there, in? There was, there was a big uh, um, article, I guess it was, it's been a few years, I have no sense of time these days, but um, with uh, with Game of Thrones, there was apparently, a, a, I think it was maybe a Starbucks cup that was caught in one, oh, of, the, no. one of the scenes, <laughs> I think. Uh, kind of a climactic battle scene, and uh, and and so I, I don't know if they they had to go back and reshoot or if they just left it in for posterity. Or, but uh, but yeah, that sounds like a really interesting kind of problem. Yeah, it sounds like an anomaly that uh, should have been picked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But how do you train an AI to recognize that that doesn't belong in a medieval atmosphere? <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I guess you'd have to classify objects to such detail that you can recognize the objects in in various frames. But um I think we're probably a long way away from thinking through that unintended consequence. Yeah. You know, oh yeah, we were able to recognize the coffee cup 100%. That was easy, but we forgot to 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 note that it doesn't belong in uh, a medieval, uh, fantastical world. Yeah, I guess that that level of quality control is still up to the humans today. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, have you seen any sto- interesting stories of like data labeling gone wrong? Um, you know, I. I there's nothing in particular uh, that I that I can think of except uh, just kind of the general theme of bias in data, which I think is is important. I think bias is um, has always been a challenge for uh, for machine learning models. I think we'll continue to see a lot of focus on that as we get more into things like synthetic ge- data generation. Right. Um, so that's. One of the things that we're that we're working on at InnoData is, as part of the full ecosystem of data, machine learning models, and the application of those, one of the things that we often see is that sometimes there just isn't an adequate uh, level of data available for training. And so I think synthetic data is a really interesting topic. I think the challenges are going to be how to how to avoid bias and kind of that echo chamber uh, of error that causes lots of, of bias issues, which have uh, social economic implications. Um, it also just causes issues with data drift over time. If you're, if you're training all of your data on a, on a, on a narrow slice of reality, it's going to eventually drift away from uh, from that reality as those errors propagate. So that's that's kind of the importance of continuing 
to, to train data over time. It's, it's never a, it's never done. You know, you always have to account for new things. Um, even for something like, if you're trying to recognize events, uh, uh, geographic, socio-political events, or um, medical issues, you know, pre-COVID-19, a machine learning model might not even know what that is. And today, if you were able to continue training your models in whatever domain, you can keep up with, with things that uh, are unexpected like that. So my base level of synthetic data generation is that it's a solution for when you have an incomplete data set, right? Yeah. So yeah, that, mm-hmm. a lot of the time I feel like bias in AI, as you mentioned, could just comes from just not having the data, whether it's due to historical inequities or any reason for just not having the right amount of data, the model ends up coming out biased. But how can you tell if you have an incomplete ba- data set, especially if the model is functioning as you expect it to and it's, it, it seems like it's giving you the right answer? How can, how can you tell that the model is biased when your subconscious view of reality might be biased as well? Yeah, that, that's, uh, there's an important role there for data scientists and for metrics around evaluating the models. And I, I wouldn't profess to be an expert in, in that domain, but um, I know one of the things that, that we focus on with our data extraction machine learning technologies is the not just the confidence of our overall extraction, but at a data point level, how confident is the model that it was able to identify this thing correctly. So you might have uh, an earnings report. Uh, you might have a um, a legal contract that's 500 pages, and you want to extract the the parties and the uh, the dates of interest and all sorts of parameters around around that that complex contract. And at a data point specific level, you can say, well, I'm I'm 99% sure that I got the the date of execution correct, but I'm only 50% sure that I got the um, interest rate that we agreed on correct because maybe the model wasn't able to, to have enough examples, enough variance of those examples or enough context to be able to, to pull out that specific data point. So that's, that's one of the things that active learning also helps address. Um, active learning is, is really about pushing things in reverse. So having the model tell you, uh, prompt the user to say, I need to know more information about this thing. Tell, tell me more about this. So the example is kind of um, more of a question prompting process where after some initial set of documents, you train your, your model on initial set of documents, and then the machine says, uh, tell me about X, Y, Z. And it, and it kind of targets those specific questions because it knows that those are the areas where it is least confident. That's smart. Yeah. I feel like that's a, like a hallmark of intelligence in a person, like being smart enough to be able to ask for help. And that's right. really cool that you're implementing that in 
computer intelligence. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the, just the really self-awareness. Cool. I, I hadn't thought yeah. of it in that, that way outside of, uh, you know, the, the machines becoming self-aware for, for better <laughs> or for worse. <laughs> Sounds like that's a, that's a use case for better. Um, <laughs> so is that, uh, earlier you mentioned you also, so we talked about the data annotation platform. You also mm -hmm. mentioned something about a data extraction platform. Is that like the example you just gave of pouring through a legal document and pulling out the data points? Is that what the data extraction platform is? Exactly. Yeah, that that's exactly right. So we we take all of that training data that maybe use the annotation platform to identify. You feed that into our machine learning models. They apply that on a per document basis, and they give you the uh, source transparency. So they tell you exactly what the value of a data point was how it was extracted from the document, and it points you to the exact location in the document so that as a user, as an SME, as a subject matter expert, um, you can review that and verify that it's correct. And it gives you those confidence values so that you can have some, some level of confidence around the model itself. And then you can feed that back in to the overall process. So I, I think that's, that's also something that we've been thinking a lot more about Interdata, uh, within Interdata recently, is um, how all of these things are really connected and how our, our vision for this interconnected platform, starting with initial data annotation to training and applying models, feeding that back uh, so that annotators have a starting point. Um, so if you imagine not just extracting the data points for a business purpose, but also extracting the data points to help auto-suggest to the next annotator, hey, this is a, this is a thing that, that we think uh, we should be annotating. Uh, do you agree? And that just makes the life of the annotator easier, facilitates the process, and, and cuts down the time for the annotators as well. So it's, it's really important, uh, just kind of going back to that, that um, user experience, we, we want to cut down that 80% of, uh, of data manipulation time for data scientists, we also want to do the same for annotators so that they can be more productive, they can generate more high quality work, um, which, is also, uh, which is also important. That's really cool. It sounds like a similar advantage that you're giving annotators that CRMs gave salespeople when they first came around. Like you have multiple Say with the with the advantage of a CRM that has all the notes of every client in there, you can give multiple salespeople the same set of clients, and they can all know what's going on with each of them. Sounds like you can give multiple annotators the same data set. I, I mean, uh, yeah, same data set. They could all work on the same data set and all be on the same page, thanks to the suggestions and and stuff that you're talking about in there. That that's exactly right, and, and as part of our SaaS platform, you configure, you start with that data workbench, that annotation workbench, and you configure the workflow. So you say, I've got 30 annotators on my team, but I want every, every document to be seen by at least two annotators. And then you configure how an arbitrator might operate on disagreements between the annotators. Um, you the annotators can leave comments if there's something that's a little ambiguous or if they want to justify 
their rationale behind why they made a decision. They can leave those comments behind for the arbitrator to take into account. We do QA on that, and and eventually those those results get exported, and and train incrementally improve the machine learning models that then auto suggest in the system again. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's a, a good analogy. Man, this is making me feel better about the future because <laughs> I know <laughs> like there's a, a big concern with AI going forward as it runs more and more facets of society is making sure that it's explainable so you can look at it and know exactly why it's making the decisions it's making. Uh, and it sounds like you guys are working on building explainability in at every step of the process, starting with the data, which is super important. Yeah, uh, that, that's exactly right. So there's a lot of ways to get at that kind of transparency. And one of the important ways to do that is to have a really good handle on uh, how the model arrived there. And if you know what the data was that went into the model, then you can start to investigate if you start to identify any sources of, of bias. That's really cool. So. A little while ago, we had on Mark Messina. He's the COO of a company called Geek Plus. And that was a really fun episode because they do robotics in uh, the logistics industry. And he was literally sitting in his office with a glass wall behind him of a bunch of robots running around carrying boxes, um, <laughs> which was pretty cool. Um, yeah. But so obviously in these warehouses that are running mostly off of robotics, uh, they have like robots carrying the packages to the humans that are putting them on like a rack where they need to go to be shipped out to the end user of the product. Um, obviously that's all, a lot of it is run by AI. And I was wondering what the differences are between training data sets for an AI that's running like software versus an AI that's running a physical like robot. Oh yeah, that's interesting. So uh, there, there's a lot of overlap because um, especially in the, the world of image and video annotation. So a lot of that annotation uh, is eventually intended to make its way to things like autonomous vehicles, but the same is true for you know, um, Boston Dynamics, uh, uh, Big Dog program, I think they call it. I don't remember what they call spot. it. Spot. Spot. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Boston Dynamics Spot product and, and other things like that. I think um, uh, that's another trend that we'll continue to see is beyond just uh, software web kind of ecosystems of machine learning and AI, we'll start to see that creep more into the physical space. Which, um, which I think is exciting. Yeah, I think that's where it gets really cool because it's tangible. Like you, you can have YouTube recommend you a video that's like exactly what you want to see. And like, that's really cool and not something that happened 10 years ago. But when you can see a robot just walk up and open a door, that's so cool, it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and even... Um... And even physical devices in the home, like um, the Nest uh, thermostat, I think is really interesting. Um, the focus on user experience there is is really fascinating to me. I, I um, in college, I've been haunted by a book that I read in college my entire life. Uh, it's called The Design of Everyday Things, 
And it is mostly about physical object design. Um, it talks about the design of the paper clip, for example, and, and other, uh, other really interesting things you, you probably never would have thought about. Um, it talks about thermostats, like in your car, if your car is really hot and you want to crank up the AC, people tend to just put it on max rather than set it at, you know, a reasonable temperature. Yeah. And the question is, does that actually do anything? Uh, is that actually increasing the cool output more than just setting it to the, the, the gold temperature? Uh, and, and even uh, it's, it haunts me with, um, with things as simple as doors. So there are certain doors where whether you have a horizontal or a vertical handle, uh, there's an implication. It's, it's telling you that you either need to push or you need to pull. And a lot of times those doors are wrong. And, uh, and so whenever I see somebody, a friend or family member, uh, push a door instead of pulling it and, and then they're really embarrassed because they did the wrong thing. <laughs> I just, I'm just like, it's, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. <laughs> it's bad design. So I, that's, that's a thing that I always think about that book and I always think about it in, in the context of, of whatever I'm doing, even, even with building things like uh, the annotation platform or, or making it so that an analyst doesn't have to click that button 30 times, that they can just click it that one time. Um, those are all things that can and should be fixed by, by user experience. That makes a lot of sense, in the, especially in the context of AI. Like when we're starting to implement AI with uh, driving, um, I mean, now we're seeing a lot of cities open up full self-driving taxis to be available, which is crazy. But I know like the kind of the first use cases for um, like most consumer vehicles are going to be like recommendations um, where it like helps guide you with your lane changes or keep you from drifting out of your lane. Um, and cars that have a camera on the driver that can wake you up if, if you look drowsy. Right. Um, and it's really important to have that level of detail that, you know, you're not putting the equivalent of a vertical handle that <laughs> you actually need to push instead of pull into your your car system. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You want to drive people to the the right in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> cool. Well, um before we get to wrapping up, I want to ask you some leadership questions like as I I'm sure you lead teams as a VP over there at Innodata. So how would you describe your personal approach to leadership in, in your role? Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I, I think, you know, there, there are a lot of models for how to interact with your team as a, as a leader. And I think different management styles and different leadership styles, um, understanding those and, and learning about those from, from books are valuable. But I think one of the things that is often missed is that it, it doesn't always work for everyone. If you have a direct reporter or employees, uh, if you, you very likely in, in an appropriately 
um, diverse environment. Everybody has different needs. And um, so there's, there's roles for emotional intelligence as a, as a core um, leadership principle. There are um, times when um, even micromanaging uh, is valuable. Uh, <laughs> there are times when delegation and uh, the opposite of micromanagement is valuable. And I think one of the keys to, to leadership is uh, identifying those and finding out what the right mix is for your team and for individuals. Because um, I think it that is what facilitates strong performance and strong cohesion and um, and ultimately happiness at the workplace. I, I've, I, I've, I've worked with a lot of teams and, and I know some people, when I put a one-on-one -on, -one on the calendar, they're thrilled and they want that to be repeating, you know, every week. Um, and other people are like, Steve, come on. I just talked to you yesterday. We don't need this one-on-one. -on -one. Let's, uh, let's, let's skip this. Um, so I think it's important to, to understand what kind of style works for what kinds of individuals. That's really good advice. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, I try to, I try to have a mix of all of those things. I try to learn from other leaders, other mentors that I have, um, and, and implement things that, that I see. And, and even within and among the projects that I work on, I, I probably take on more than I should. Um, so I, I, I kind of have this, um, breadth of interaction with things. And there are certain things that I, I do tend to micromanage because I know, uh, I have a very strong opinion on this, this, uh, this, this button that I want people <laughs> to click one time. Right. But I, I absolutely trust the team to do the other 99% uh, their way, you know, and I think there's an important balance there between being being too involved or being involved in the right things, and um, just being a support to the overall team. Because um, I think the the leader is really there to help support the team um, and not the reverse. So earlier we were talking about bias in AI, and it's. I feel like pretty common knowledge that the best way to combat bias in AI is just to have a really strong, diverse group of humans working on the AI. So what's, what's your approach to making sure your team is diverse and inclusive at Inadata? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. I, I think, um, you know, I'm really lucky to work at a company that is as global as Inadata is. We have people um, on our teams all over the world, um, not just here in the U.S., also in Canada, in India, in the Philippines, Sri Lanka, uh, Israel, Germany, uh, Dublin. Um, we have people all, all over the world. Um, so I think that kind of geographical diversity is very valuable. When we approach particular problems we're doing data annotation as a managed service, that kind of geographical expertise and diversity becomes really important. And, and having the options to, uh, to tailor a specific challenge, not just to the expertise. So one, one important aspect of diversity is that diversity and experience. So we have all of those doctors and all of those lawyers 
that are helping contribute their experience, but also um, uh, locally. Um, so, for example, if you're if you're trying to annotate credit card transactions, and all of your annotators are on the East Coast, there are certain burger joints that they're not going <laughs> to recognize, right? Yeah. So even that kind of diversity geographically uh, and on a more kind of local scale is is also really important. That's really cool. I remember earlier you mentioned that you have like over 3,500 subject matter experts employed there and having them dispersed geographically around the world, I think is super valuable because now not only can you bring in a subject matter expert to look at the data of a problem, you can bring in multiple experts on the same subject that have different backgrounds to bring just their different views of the same subject that they're all, they've all worked and spent a lot of time on. And exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That creates like a super expert with all of them. <laughs> yeah, that it's it's incredibly valuable for the expertise as a subject matter expert. It's also incredibly valuable uh, from a developer perspective. So we have hybrid teams that are working uh, in the in the East Coast, and we have uh, that are working directly with with teams in India on the same kinds of projects. And all of these teams are um, have their own kinds of experience and their own uh, contributions to how they approach uh, a, a process. Um, and I think we try to learn from, uh, from every individual on every team that we have to help uh, improve and evolve our, our process uh, over time, whether that's uh, engineers uh, developing a system, whether that's the designers, QA, the DevOps, um, subject matter expertise, and even project managers and, and other kinds of uh, leadership. So if you could go back and talk to yourself towards the beginning of your career, you're an individual contributor moving into your first management role. What's the advice you give them? Oh, man, that's a, that's <laughs> a tough one. I, I hadn't thought about that before. I think... Uh, Knowing that there's no right answer uh, is important. So there are a lot of ways to accomplish a problem. Uh, there's similarly a lot of ways to, to manage a team or provide leadership. Uh, leadership from within uh, a team is, is just as important as leadership from uh, an official leadership position. Um, I think everybody has that ability to contribute. And... And whether you're in either of those kinds of roles, uh, just knowing that there, there's never really a right answer. There's just some answers are better than others. And uh, everything is a little bit trial and error and, and everything is a learning opportunity. So if you, if you apply the wrong leadership style or if you implement the wrong process and it, it crashes and burns, uh, it's not the end of the world. That's something that's easy to, uh, to, um, to change and evolve over time. Today, as you're leading your teams, how do you implement that attitude towards failure to make sure everyone's open to sharing, talking, and learning about it? Yeah, so there's, uh, it, it comes, it come, that comes back to a balance of uh, process and 
where the appropriate level of process comes into play. Uh, so I think some teams are more naturally communicative and um, and self-aware and uh, feel like they can do those retrospective meetings and talk about it openly and with a goal towards um, improving the process o- over time or improving the product over time. Sometimes more process helps. So facilitating communication is, is the most important step. It's usually the first step. Uh, daily scrum meetings, just to make sure everybody's on the same page and involved is really important. Uh, retrospectives are really important. I think the way that you run the retrospectives, that the, that the teams maybe run their own retrospectives are really important. Kind of the tone that you set and the expectations around uh, what failure means and, and how um, improvement happens is really important. And especially today, uh, now that we're, uh, most of the world is, is much more remote work from home than usual, those kinds of, of communication um, channels are more important than ever. Awesome, man. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything else we want to get out there today? Uh, any shout out for Inadata? You guys hiring? Uh, we're we're always hiring. So uh, so yeah, I would say um, if if you're interested in the data lifecycle, if you're interested in um, helping reduce that eighty um, percent time for data scientists or annotators or anyone in the financial services or legal or healthcare industries be more effective and more efficient. Um, if you're interested in the design process of, of taking um, managed services and turning those into platforms and products that we can uh, put in the hands of people outside of the company um, and run as a self-service uh, tool. Um, I think if you're, if, if any of that resonates, then, uh, then, then definitely check out innodata.com. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.